God, may the words that I say be acceptable and pleasing to you. May they speak to us this morning in new and powerful ways. Sometimes these words just seem to wash over us and around us, but never through us. Let whatever word we need to hear today be open and available to us through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus Christ's name, I ask this on behalf of all of us. And together we say, Amen. I invite you this, our PowerPoint didn't work out the way it needs to, so if you don't use the app, you might want to use it today. You won't see any scripture on the screen. You have that thing in front of you called a Bible, which you can open up and follow along with as well. There will be some slides up there, but it's like Forrest Gump. You never know what you're going to get. This week, we continue Jesus' farewell, his goodbye to the disciples. On the last evening he spends with the disciples before his death, Jesus tries to show them two elements of the reality they're about to face and that are difficult to hold together. He is going away, and yet he is not abandoning them. Goodbyes are hard, amen? We try to make the best of them. You know, somebody's going on to something better or this is a good thing or I'll see you later. Goodbye actually means God be with you until we meet again. But goodbyes are hard. And in some ways... You do feel abandoned. Because it won't be the same again. No matter what happens. And as they're listening, Peter and Thomas and Philip and Judas, not Iscariot, all ask questions or make requests of Jesus as he's preparing his beloved brothers for his departure. In John 14, 23-29 is our text for today when you look it up or pull it up on your app. Or... It's part of the answer to a question that Judas has asked just the verse before. A couple of verses before. In John 14, 19, Jesus has just said, In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And then Judas now presses Jesus for more information when he says this, How is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not the world? That's the verse right before today's text. And from this question, it sounds as if Judas is expecting Jesus to reveal secrets to give his followers knowledge that's hidden from the world at large, the secret handshake kind of thing. And the answer Jesus gives, however, goes in another direction entirely. Jesus is not interested in hiding knowledge from anyone. It's not some super secret society you have to be a part of to understand. But while the world will not see him any longer... It will see his followers 
And the words from this text are the words that follow are for his followers. But it's probably not a coincidence that as, as his followers keep loving him, the world will see his followers keeping his word. And to keep his word, it means to follow his commandments. It is to wash one another's feet. It is to love one another as we learned last week in Mark. And as the disciples kept the word of Jesus, they will become a community characterized by mutual regard and love and service. That's what they will be known for. And so when it says Jesus answered him, he's answering Judas. He says, those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them. Throughout Jesus' farewells, Jesus makes it clear that followers love him by serving others. Followers love him by serving others. You want to show Jesus you love him, you do it by serving others, not by telling him you love him. Amen? Have you ever heard of the five love languages by Gary Chapman? Raise your hand if you ever heard of the five love languages. In your app, you can actually go to that website. You can do that. If you haven't done it in a while, I would encourage you that it also isn't just for romantic couples or married couples or anything like that. Those five love languages are how we process and give love in all circumstances. Friendships and everything else. There's kids' love languages. You can have your kids can actually do it, and you can figure out what their love languages are. And if you're having a hard time trying to figure out your kid, then I would guarantee you that that's a great way to be able to figure out what kind of love they really need. And those five love languages are words of affirmation and acts of service and receiving gifts and quality time and physical touch. And we give and receive in those same things. So, for instance, it means that if your if your love language is quality time, and your friend, significant other, whatever, is not spending time with you, that's what hurts the most. Even maybe they're doing acts of service. Well, I do all these things for you. They don't care about that. They care about quality time. If it's physical touch, then it. It has to be something that you can do all kinds of quality time, but you never really have any intimate space together. That's not going to work. And we give and receive in the same ways as the love languages. And here, Jesus is really, if you could characterize it, you could say Jesus' love language here is acts of service. You want to show me how you love me? Serve your neighbors. Help people. Don't tell me about it. Don't read your Bible more. Don't even pray more. In this case, in this moment, he's saying love is an act of service. He showed it time and time again when they were unwilling to wash their feet. What did Jesus do? Grabbed a towel, got down, and washed his disciples' dirty, stinking feet. And they were aghast. And he said, I'm a servant. I serve. You must be a servant to all. Acts of service, not just words. And so he lays this out. And maybe we can distinguish between loving Jesus and keeping his word. And we can imagine not doing one but doing the other. 
But Jesus doesn't know how to do that. Doesn't recognize that distinction at all. It's the same thing for him. There's a no escape clause in John 14, 23b. It's a condition of fact. Those who love me will keep my word. And he made it clear that the word that he said was that love for Jesus simply is love in action. Amen? That it's in action. It isn't just saying it. It's actually living it out. And so it makes me consider, what does it look like to keep or obey Jesus' word or teaching? What does that mean? How do we do that? It means to serve. Not just the church. It means to serve in all ways, all areas of your life. It isn't just about showing up, feed the need, and checking off a box and going, hey, well, you know what, that was awesome. It means about serving in all of our life other people. That we're not number one. We're not even number two. It's more like we're number three. God first, others second, me third. When we mix that order up, things get really bad. Jesus knew that. He didn't want the disciples to be focused on themselves. Or even him. He wanted them to be focused on something bigger during these last moments. I mean, how does God's love dictate our actions? Does God's love dictate our actions? Is it God's love you're thinking about first before you react to something, before you do something? Are you considering what God's love tells us before you talk to that person or, the, or go into that situation? Where the disciples know it or not, to live that kind of love, they're going to need the constant presence of God in their midst. And so Jesus offers them three promises to help them to be able to understand what he's talking about. The first promise he says of himself and the Father about those who love him, he says, and we will come to them and make our home in them, our dwelling You see, John is a very different kind of gospel. Barbara and I were talking about that this week. If you laid out John with the rest of the gospels, you will not find many things in common between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, and John. The purpose is different. And from the first chapter of this gospel, there's no birth story for Jesus. The first chapter of this gospel that we know that prior to anyone's love for Jesus, the word became flesh and lived among us. That's how John's gospel starts. The word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. No one would be able to love Jesus if the Father had not first loved the world enough to send the Son into it. That's what John's saying. It's a simple statement about where God likes to spend God's time. And it is with us. God likes to spend God's time in the creation. And making our home with them reminds us of that beginning. 
but also moves us forward to that reality in the end envisioned in Revelation that says, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. Revelation studiers. The intimacy of God is shown here with the idea that it's a we. We will dwell. We will make our home among them. And that Jesus in the person of God making a home with the disciples is really important. Earlier Jesus had spoken to his disciples of the many dwellings in his father's house. The many rooms that would be present. Where he's going to prepare a place for them. Now Jesus says that he and the Father will come and make a dwelling with them. To make a home. One writer describes it as the spiritual indwelling of the Father and the Son in the life of the believer. Spiritual indwelling. A communal experience with God, which is available to all those who love and keep God's commandments. So think about that. Do you feel like in your life, in, in your space, you've given the Father and Son a place to make a home? To feel welcome enough to go inside and to, to spend time with you? You know, a home is a place where you're welcomed. It's not just a house. It's a home. There's hospitality. There's a space emptied out and a place that's available for guests to come. Do we make that space available? Are they welcome? Can you really say that the Spirit dwells inside of you? And there's that space available for that. And is it scary? Is it scary to think about that God makes a home inside of ourselves, that we carry God around with us? through all the moments of our life as we allow God to fill us up more and more. I've, you know, you mentioned before is, you know, if your vessel is already full, if, you're, if your soul is already full, if your spirit is already full of other stuff, there is no place for God to come in. If you don't empty yourself, then you can't get anything else new. You ever been so full after you've eaten something that it just feels so bad? You're like, I should never have eaten all that. I feel miserable. And then someone offered you the piece of cake or a piece of pie, you know, and you're like, well, I just take a few more bites. I'm sure I can shove it in there somewhere. If we're so full up with everything else of the world that we have no place present to receive the dessert of God, the good stuff, the real sweet stuff, then we miss out. We've got to have that open space. Jesus continues, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am still here with you. I mean, if you read this literally, you might think that those who do not keep God's words are not loved by God. If that was the case, 
we'd all be in a world of hurt. Amen? Because there are at least a few times, if not more, that we do not keep God's words of love. Yet the focus here for John is consistent with his message throughout the gospel. If there's one thing that John says again and again, it is that love necessitates or demands action. Love demands action. It's necessary. You can't just have love without action, John keeps saying again and again, which is why he puts Jesus in these places, saying these things. You see, love enables us to be sent into the world. Why would you want to go into the world to change it in the first place if you didn't love? If you don't care, then you don't do anything. You're apathetic. You're indifferent. You have to care to want to change something. And Jesus is using some of his precious remaining time to be explicit about what he hopes for the disciples. Then Jesus announces the second promise. He announces the arrival of the Spirit among the believers. So during the time between his goodbye and the hello of life in the New Jerusalem, he says this, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Think about somebody you've lost in your life. Maybe it's a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather or, or somebody really important to you and all you have is memories of them. But it seems like that the, you don't realize that probably until years after their death you really begin to understand them, to know them better, to know their life, to know their value. You understand them better probably than when they were alive. That's how the Holy Spirit is here. It remembers. The Holy Spirit reminds. The Holy Spirit, years after Jesus' death and resurrection, is still speaking to the disciples, still speaking today about those same words that we hear, still remembering and reminding the Holy Spirit accompanies the church as it remembers. The Spirit guides the disciples and the church as we think back over what we experienced of Jesus. As we continue to look at these words. As we seek to let our love for Him show up in the ways we relate to others, the Spirit helps us to understand and to live into these words of Jesus by keeping His word on behalf of the world. The Holy Spirit's repository of that, the all the word reminding us, speaking to us. Hannah was saying earlier, just talking about the fact is that she prays about the night before what it is that she feels like the Spirit is speaking. And if the Spirit speaks something, she writes it down because the Spirit is the place where all of that knowledge, all of that scripture and word and thought, it's all together. You see the title given to the Holy Spirit, things like advocate and counselor and helper and friend and reminder and convincer and all the things that we learned at Life in the Spirit way back in November now. Pull out your notebooks, look at it again, remember those things that we talked about. 
It can be translated in various ways, but the main idea seems to be one that, who will be like Jesus, present with us during difficulties to empower and guide us. The Holy Spirit is there to empower us and to guide us. I mean, think about what does it mean to you that both the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit serve as an advocate for you? That we have this great resource in Jesus' words and the Holy Spirit's action and presence. You see, our God is ascending God. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus knows he's been sent by the Father. That the Father and Son send the Spirit. And as a witness of the grace we've experienced through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we too are sent. Amen? We are sent people. It is the word that we know more than anything else that we are to be sent. Sent in different ways. While this might seem daunting or scary, the presence of the Holy Spirit brings comfort to that calling. If we allow ourselves to lean into it. To know that there is no place where God has not already gone where we need to go. Amen? That there is no place where the Holy Spirit has not prepared the way and helped guide. How many times have you had an experience where you're like, well, you know, this all worked out according... I didn't realize this was all going to work out. I can't believe how I look at this. Steph talked about it several weeks ago when, when she was preaching and she said, you know, I never thought I'd be up here doing this. Because she would never know that. Because the Spirit doesn't reveal to us the whole plan. The Spirit only says, open yourself up to this, and I'll get you from this lamppost to the next lamppost. And in between, there's a lot of fog. And the next light's the only one that you can see. The Holy Spirit does that. This Holy Spirit here serves a greater function than simply to remind us, though. The Holy Spirit serves as a teacher to the disciples, to remind them, to teach them. I'm going to say all these things. You ever had somebody say them to you, and it's like, I forgot everything you just said, and you wish that you would wrote it down, or you wish you'd done something with it. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. These guys are, are all in a fog. Jesus is telling me he's going to die and leave and all this other stuff, and they're like this. They're like deer in the headlights. And that's why he says... Don't worry about it. After I'm gone, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you everything I just told you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now about their comfort, the Holy Spirit doesn't say you'll be comfortable. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to, oh, you're hurting. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you. That's not what the Holy Spirit says or does. It may happen. But that's not the job of the Holy Spirit to make us comfortable. The Holy Spirit helps the disciples truly understand and live out that understanding as a blessing to God. To truly understand the words that Jesus has said. And the grace of God is abundantly present. Multitude of spiritual experiences from the Spirit. It isn't just one thing. We learned that in November too. There were many, many ways of expressions of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit is present in so many ways we can't even put into words. And you see, the disciples cannot yet perceive the value of the gift that Jesus has just given them. They're like, yeah, okay. The Holy Spirit will come and remind you. Oh, okay. 
They're just taking it all in. They don't understand how powerful that is. And I have to be honest, I think most of us don't understand it either. Amen? So we don't really understand the Holy Spirit. We don't grasp onto it. We get a tenth of it, maybe. And we, and we focus on Jesus, or we focus on God the Creator, and we just leave the Holy Spirit out there somewhere. Like, I don't know how to deal with that, so I don't. And it's power. And Jesus speaks of the home that the Father will make with those who love him. And he promises the guidance of the Holy Spirit as his followers remember him. And then finally, as a third promise, he gives his own peace to those whom he's about to leave. This is the verse probably we know the best from this text. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. You might not be aware of it, but did you know the Gospel of John never mentions peace until Jesus says it here? The whole Gospel, until this moment, never talks about this peace. And on the eve of his death, Jesus constructs the in contrast, the peace he gives with the peace the world gives. We've heard it, though, him offer it again and again later on. As he appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, we talked about it for several weeks. Peace be with you. He kept saying it all the time. They're scared to death. Peace be with you. So how is the peace that Jesus gives different? How is that different than the world gives? It's easy to say that, but how, how do you live that out? How is the peace that Jesus gives different? A lot of times we discuss that peace and we talk about like, you know, God gave me this peace and I can't even tell you what I'm really feeling. Or, you know, we pray for that kind of peace we receive it. And one of the ways we automatically know that that is a peace from God is usually when I hear it, it's usually somebody says, I don't know how to explain it. If you don't know how to explain it, more than likely that's the kind of peace that comes from God. I don't know. Because you, you can't believe it. You don't really understand it. You don't know how to deal with it. So you have to, like, I can't explain it. The Holy Spirit isn't explainable a lot of times. The Holy Spirit speaks and sighs too deep for words. That kind of peace. And how does this peace aid us in not being afraid? Because I have this peace, I'm, I'm not afraid. A lot of times is what happens, is that that peace kind of comes over you and you don't fear that same kind of, feel that same kind of fear that you felt before. I mean, Jesus does not describe the peace he offers. Though from his words in John 14, 27, we might assume that his peace offers disciples both comfort for troubled hearts and courage in the midst of fear. You know, you can be courageous and still be afraid. Almost anybody you think is courageous will tell you that they're afraid. Courage doesn't come out of a lack of fear. Courage comes out of persistence and the ability to move forward to do something even when you are afraid. So you have this whole idea here that throughout the events of his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion as well as the resurrection that Jesus will embody the peace he talks about here. They will see in him he is peace. That he is peace. 
all the way through the rest of the story. We often hear this read at funerals for those grieving. I've said these words probably almost every celebration of life that I've done. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Peace. We do it to bring comfort to the family and those gathered. And yet, I can't help but wonder, is Jesus implying that we have a choice about whether our hearts are troubled? That we have a choice about whether we are afraid? Maybe. Maybe we don't have to live like that. Maybe we can overcome it. Not let our fears control us. Find comfort in the midst of our trouble. I mean, what practices do you use to help when your heart is feeling troubled? When your heart is troubled, what do you do? Worry yourself to death about it until you can't even think anymore and can't eat and can't sleep? That's helpful, isn't it? Changes one thing, doesn't it? Changes it all, right? You worry about it more and more, whatever it is, and it just changes it overnight, right? Yeah, right. That's a solution, right? Worry about it more. How, what do you do? When your heart is troubled, where, where do you go? What helps you? Where does your faith and your belief come in those moments when you're troubled? What do you learn from that experience? How many times have you, you know, turned to God and, and then gone through an experience and gone, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be? We almost all, always assume something will always be worse because we think that somehow the worst case scenario is the best way for us to be prepared for something. And yet most of the time the worst case scenario doesn't ever happen. And we spend all our energy and our time focused on the worst, not the best. And yet the Holy Spirit, if allowed to come to us, would help us to see and to deal with things in a different way. You see, as disciples, we're all sent into the world to live out the love we've experienced. Embracing the reality that we're all sent in some way helps us keep perspective when we're tempted to let our hearts be troubled or to be afraid to give in to that fear. Being sent means we still go. We still go and do whatever it is that God called us to do. In this church years ago, you had a decision to make when things got really bad, close the doors, pack it up, go sell the place, and just go live under a tree somewhere, as my friend Davis likes to say all the time. Or in the midst of darkness, you just keep going forward. You keep moving ahead in faith and in belief that God will be present and will walk through the valley as well. But here's the thing about the valley is, you don't stay in the valley. In the valley of the shadow of death, it's not where you stay. You're just traveling through it to get to the other side. If you sit down and just plop yourself down, you'll be there forever. You keep going through the valley to get to the other side, to the green pasture that it talks about in Psalm 23. See, there's intentionality in our efforts to keep God's greatest commandments in love. When we keep putting that commandment out in front of us to love our neighbor as we love God, as we love ourselves, and we keep moving in that direction to be sent, then everything else changes for us 
Because if we're not focused on ourselves, we're moving forward into the place that God has sent us. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father. Because the Father is greater than I. I wonder if the disciples had some measure of guilt because they didn't want him to go. You ever felt that way about somebody? It's like, you know, you want them to go have that experience. You want them to be able to move on to that thing. But but you feel guilty because you, you selfishly want them to stay. We don't really care that's going to be better. We want you to stay. We, we want you to be present with us, Jesus. We don't want to lose your physical presence. But it's going to be much better. We don't care. We want you here with us. I mean, how could they not? It seems understandable the disciples would not be in a rejoicing mood upon learning Jesus would soon be leaving them. They're like, oh, that's awesome. You're going back to the Father? That is the best. That's not how they are. They're processing all of this. And Jesus tries to reassure them he's not simply leaving them. But there's a purpose. He's going to be with his Father. And he's trying to draw out the parts of them that are able to rejoice despite the confusion or sadness. You know, you ever do that? You you use those words. It's like, well, I'm really going to miss that person. But you know what? They're going to be able to go do an awesome thing. Or they're going to move on to this place. Or it's amazing they get to do this. Or whatever it is. Or I'm going to miss them. But there's so much good that comes out of it. It's where he's trying to get them to go. So they're able to claim the love of God on their lives and willingly be sent into the world. And I can imagine the disciples were still not convinced that Jesus' leaving could be a good thing. And Jesus says, And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. Indeed, it's only after the resurrection with the aid of the Holy Spirit the disciples begin to understand. They don't figure it out on their own. And believe the words of Jesus and are finally able to rejoice. That's when they get it. When all this has happened. And they understand the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, isn't often only after the emotions of the moment that we be reminded of the presence of God? We're in that moment we're so caught up in sorrow and loss and brokenness and whatever else is going on that we just can't even see past it to allow God to come in and show us the good stuff. When those emotions of the moment go away, then we can begin to look and see how God begins to make everything work together. I mean, every time I think about these things, this reminds me of moving from place to place over my life. It's the only experience I have. It's the experience of leaving some place you love and you want to stay and, and, you know, aren't sure things are going to work out to all of a sudden go into the next place in which things, you know, work out exactly how God wanted them to in the first place. When we left from Spring Hill to go to Pleasant View, which was an hour distance, and Hannah's here and we're here and she's in school down here, I'm like, I remember going to school and crying my eyes out and I couldn't figure out how it was going to work. I was completely broken about the idea that I would never see her in the same way that I'd been seeing her for those several years when we were in Bethlehem. We lived in Spring Hill just right down the road from her. I couldn't imagine it. I even asked, I even asked for reconsideration. Went to my DS. And yet, those four years in Pleasant View were amazing. Amazing. 
was a wonderful place to be. Wonderful people to grow with. And then, of course, then that led to here. Now into our seventh year. I had no idea 11 years ago that's how things were going to work out. To me, it was the end. You see? Now I can look back at it because I don't have the same emotion about it anymore. I can look back at it and go, oh my gosh, look how the Holy Spirit worked through every situation, every person to move into this direction. That's how it works. And he's trying to draw them into that to understand that. But why tell the disciples all of this now? Well, it goes back to Judas' question. Remember the first question he asked is, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? So often we do not understand what God is up to. Amen? It's hard. We want to understand. We want to know. And when we don't, it's extremely hard for us. We do not understand how certain events could have any meaning or result in anything good. How can these things that happen result in any kind of good? Why does God allow tornadoes and flooding? Why does God allow shootings? Why does God allow poverty? Why does God allow any of these things to happen? Why does God allow a loved one to die? Why does God allow good people to suffer? We don't understand. That person over there, sure, I understand that they got in trouble for doing what they did. But why does this innocent person over here have to die and suffer for that? We, we don't know. And Jesus says these are all the ways of how they'll see Jesus, continue to see Jesus and know him after he goes away to all of us. It's in the home that the Father and Son make with them and us. It's in the work of the Spirit to call to mind everything that Jesus taught. And it's in the ongoing experience of peace that comes from Jesus and not from the world. And so it leads us with the question to close this off is, what does it mean for you and I to be sent by the Holy Spirit? I mean, how do you recognize the Holy Spirit is at work in your lives? How do you figure it out? How do you know? I mean, I found that it's only with time and prayer and listening. And sometimes even then it's really hard to be able to figure that out. Sometimes it's after the fact. Sometimes when a no comes up in your life, that no is there for a reason. And you don't really realize what it's going to be until later on, if at all. Sometimes you don't know why the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does, no matter how much prayer in time. But with the aid of the Holy Spirit, we begin to see how God might be working for good in the midst of terrible and confusing events. How might God still be working in the shootings in Virginia Beach afterwards, and even if it's not the battle, about figuring out what gun control looks like? How will the people on the ground reach out to one another and love each other in the moments of loss? How is it that situations where we see people hurting and broken, you know, that lives are changed. And tornadoes, you always, the stories you always hear are loss at first. And then where the other stories you always hear are hope. People helping each other. I've never been loved so much in my life. So out of these great tragedies come this ability for communities to be able to gather around and surround 
and change lives. That's where the Holy Spirit shows up. I don't believe the Holy Spirit saves you and allows someone else to die down the road. Many folks say those kind of things like, well, God spared me in this tornado. And I always tell folks, well, when you say that, then what do you say about the person down the road and their whole family was killed? That's not how God works. God doesn't protect you over someone else. God doesn't save the church or the Bible or the cross when everything else is destroyed. There are lots of natural phenomena that do those kind of things. We just draw attention in that way. But God and the Holy Spirit shows up after. People's lives. What, what do you think caused everybody to say in the midst of a tornado or something? Because you know what? I'm alive. My family's alive. All the stuff can be replaced. The only thing that causes you to really say that is, is that you know down deep through the power of God that the most important thing in life is not the things that we own. That's the Spirit's presence. That's how God works. And above all else, it is this profound love of God that Jesus made known to his disciples that as the events of the immediate and distant future unfolded for them, that Jesus' followers are able to trust the one who loved them enough to send the Son still loves us, who still seeks to dwell with us, and the Holy Spirit continues to make known in us. It's the same promise to them is the promise to us. And the Spirit assures us that we'll never be abandoned even in the midst of pain and sorrow that are part of life in this broken world, and that the Word who became flesh and lived among us continues to make His home in us today. Amen? But that Spirit is still present. That home is still possible with us. And He wanted His disciples to know this even as He was getting ready to leave them. And today in the life of the church is the celebration of Ascension Day. Ascension is the day in which Jesus actually did what he talked about in here and he left them and rose up and went to heaven to be with his Father. It is the Sunday before Pentecost and it closes off, begins to close off the Easter season. And so there's a little thing that I pulled up that was a kind of an affirmation of faith that I wanted us to read together. And think about these words when we read them. This is an affirmation of faith for us. Let's read these together. I believe in God, the Father of glory, who by great power resurrected Jesus from the dead, giving us hope in the high calling of a heavenly inheritance, and who is revealed in the immeasurable greatness of Jesus Christ, allowing us to know God's own self through the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered and died for our sins, who rose from the dead and rose up into heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, whose name is above every name, whose authority is above all authority, whose power and dominion are above all power and dominion, who reigns now and throughout every age. I believe in the Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom and the ability to love one another, who enables us to believe and empowers us to be the church, the body of Christ, indwelling and filling us with power, 
and with the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Much of our life together is remembering. We remember acts that we've never seen, but that we're a part of. The Last Supper, he broke the bread, gave the disciples and took it and said to them, this is my body which is broken and given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks to you. He gave the disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You hear those words, remembrance, remember. It is the Holy Spirit that brings us to this table through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus as the Son of God, sent by God, the Creator. And so as we receive this this morning, let us remember the great sacrifice of love. Let us remember the words to His disciples. Let us remember the gifts and promises that He gave. Let us remember what it means to be sent and what it looks like to be a sent people, not a sit people. We aren't called to sit. We are called to be sent. Let us pray as those are coming forward to serve. Gracious God, may this bread and this juice be for us the reminders of what it means to be sent and to be loved and forgiven. Of your words of telling us that this great love that we live out, we live it out by action. So Lord, pour into us and allow us to be activators of your love. Bless these elements now, the power of your Holy Spirit and the people of God said together, Amen. Come forward as you're led by God this morning. The body of Christ broken.
Here's my heart. 
speak to us. What it means to be sin. What it means to have your peace. What it means to have the presence of your Holy Spirit. What it means to have a home inside of us. Lord, speak to us what is true. Amen. Go forth this day with God's peace and know he's already been there before you. Amen.